Amen. So thankful for this time of worship. Our, our worship leader for this service is Dawn Varlak, and this week she was hospitalized uh, and uh, has been going through that, and she's home already, but uh, keep praying for her and her health, and we're thankful for Frank who stepped in and uh, led us in worship. I'm a student of leadership and uh, I wanna be a better leader. I'm always learning how to grow in that. And uh, when we talk about leadership, we, we, talked about, we talk about leading ourselves individually. We, we talk about leading our families. We talk about leading uh, in our work, in, in our school, in ministry. And so some years ago, in one of the leadership seminars that I took, there, there was a, a book, uh, that, uh, that a secular book, not a Christian book, called Leadership in the Inner Sight, uh, the Inner Sight of Greatness, a Philosophy for Leaders. And, and the author proposed that, that greatness in leadership had to have four components around it. And, and so he offers his leadership diamond that you'll see on the screen here, where greatness has to do with that uh, extraordinary potential for, for results, but it requires ethics, it means serving others, it requires a vision of, of what could be, it requires you uh, being in touch with reality, with what is, and then the courage to follow through. Well, I'm not going to necessarily propose this model of leadership, but I, I just wanna point out that there's a lot being said and talked about what does greatness look like? And as we continue our series in the life of David that we started at the beginning of this month, then uh, we're looking at stories uh, of David. And today we come to a story where we see the contrast between uh, King Saul and David, the character contrast between both of them. And we see David displaying true greatness. And as we come to that story, the question that you and I can ask ourselves is, is how is greatness present in our lives? Are we desiring to be great dads and great moms? Are we great, a great wife, a great husband? Are we a great minister? Are we a great disciple maker? Are we a, a great a member of the kingdom of God, and what does that look like? So let's jump into our text, which is found in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 5. Uh, I'm reading from the NIV, and he reads like this. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre, as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men. And David led the troops in their campaigns. In everything he did, he had great 
success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. What an interesting follow-up to the story of David and Goliath. What an interesting development we see here after that great story. David had begun to show his greatness of character in the story of Goliath, but now it becomes more evident. And so I wanna offer you four contrasting characteristics of the true greatness in the life of David. If you're following the notes on the back of your bulletin, then these are the four that uh, I'm going to give you. True greatness is characterized, first of all, by action above words. People who possess greatness are are action-oriented. They spend more energy on their actions than they do on their words. That doesn't mean words aren't important. Words matter, but, but words need to be supported with actions. Notice that in our story here, how much focus there is on David's actions. He goes out and he conquers, he accomplishes mission, he carries out successful campaigns. He, he leads a thousand men successfully. David's leadership here is results-oriented. There's not much talking that we see uh, from David in this passage, but we do see him doing much. We see David executing. On the other hand, we see Saul, and he gets caught up with words. Did you notice that? As Saul and, and David and the army is returning from their victory over Goliath and the Philistines, they're going through every town on their way back to Jerusalem, and people are coming out, and they're celebrating the victory, they're, they're singing, there are women who are dancing and playing instruments, and they have this little refrain that Saul has killed a thousand, but David has killed 10,000. And, and you know, Saul, you would think that Saul would have said, that's right, David came to our rescue. That's right, David was this, this valiant, courageous warrior who, who took us out of the pit, but, but Saul is not concerned about giving David credit. Instead, he is caught up with the words. They drive him crazy. You know, I uh, get, from time to time, I get a note that people put in the offering plate. Uh, sometimes it's uh, a complaint, sometimes it's uh, uh, some kind of suggestion. Sometimes people sign their name, sometimes it's anonymous. Uh, and I welcome all those notes, I read them, I take them seriously. The other day someone uh, left an anonymous note that it's a quote from Theodore Roosevelt and, uh, and I found it really encouraging. I wanna share it with you because I think it speaks to this very point. Listen to, to what it says. It says, it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly. 
so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Wow, what, what an encouraging word. Talk is cheap. Critics abound, you know, critics abound. I, I'm sure Ron can relate as he's leading the Student Center Project, right? There are millions of sports critics, but there are only a few good athletes, right? True greatness belongs to the one who actually gets out there and gets things done. The second thing that we see in the life of David is, is service uh, above praise. A great leader is characterized by his or her service. In fact, I believe that a great leader is servant first. Greatness values doing for the sake of serving, for doing good, not so that you can get the approval of others. When the women sang Saul's and David's praises, they, they actually were being gracious to Saul, if you think about it. When they were saying that Saul killed a thousand, I mean, they, they were actually being nice because the one who had really fought the battle was David. So, you know, but Saul is king, so they, you know, they, they were being nice to him, but, but Saul couldn't recognize the fact that, that David had actually was worthy of the praise that he was receiving. Instead, Saul was so focused on getting praise himself that it bothered him. It made him angry. He thought that the kingdom consisted of approval ratings, and he was looking for them all the time. He thought, David is stealing my kingdom. See, I think the small people base their value on the praises and approval of others. It is selfish leaders who become obsessed with the opinion of others rather than with just simply serving. Some years ago, our staff read a book from Paul David Tripp talking dangerous call, called Dangerous Calling. And uh, although it's written to pastors, I think there are things that apply to, to all of us in, in all areas of life. And, and it talks about ministry, but you could substitute ministry with leadership. Listen to what Paul says. He says, ministry or leadership is always shaped, formed, directed, and driven by worship. Your ministry will be shaped by worship of God or worship of you. Or, for most of us, a troubling mix of both. Perhaps there is no more powerful, seductive, and deceitful temptation in ministry than self-glory. Perhaps in ministry there is no more potent intoxicant than the praise of men. And there is no more dangerous form of drunkenness than to be drunk with self-glory. It has the power to reduce you to shocking self-righteousness and inapproachability. It will make you someone who is hard to work with and it will make it nearly impossible for those around you to help you see that you've become hard to work with. It will make you look down on people who are more like you than unlike you. And then he goes on to say, when confronted, you will remind yourself of your glory. When questioned, you will defend your glory. You'll be better at controlling than you are at serving. You'll resist work that you think is below you and take offense at those who presume to tell you what to do. You'll constantly confuse being an ambassador with being a king. Wow, that's convicting, isn't it? You'll constantly confuse being an ambassador with being a king. Be careful with seeking self-glory, with seeking the approval of others. It will derail you as it did Saul. 
Greatness is about service, not about seeking praise. Thirdly, we see in this story of David that there's loyalty above threats. Saul became obsessed with destroying David. What a crazy thing. Think about it. David was the only person who could play music to soothe Saul's troubled soul. He was there innocently and and kindly in Saul's court, and he had stepped up at the most critical time when this giant Goliath was threatening them. David had had done nothing but serve King Saul, and yet Saul, instead of valuing him, instead of protecting him, instead of lifting him up, wanted to destroy him. His jealousy and his insecurity drove him to seek David's life. Even as David was serving him, was playing the lyre for him, Saul gets a spear and he hurls it at David with the intention to kill him. David would have been justified if he had turned against Saul, if he would have said, look, this king has gone crazy. Let's, let's rise up and, and take over anyway. I was anointed king already, so let me take this moment. He could have done that, but he does nothing of the sort. You notice David had loyalty towards Saul. He recognized that the schizophrenic Saul was the man that God had put as king, and so he would be loyal and serve him. As Saul continued to give David assignments, Saul was hoping that David would die in the field of battle. He would put him over a thousand men, and every time David would go out in battle, he would come back victorious. Guess what, Saul? I want another battle for you. And Saul was like, instead of being happy, was like, man, why didn't you die out there? Saul felt threatened by David, but David felt loyalty toward his king, and that's true greatness. You know, uh, you probably followed the NBA Finals. We were in the Philippines watching the last couple of games there, and you notice that in the second to the last game, uh, as Kevin Durant came to to play, uh, he played for like 12 minutes, and then he got injured. And uh, and you know, the media has tried to pose KD against Steph Curry, who's better? And you know, there's this whole argument. They're always trying to drive a wedge between them so that so that they can be competing uh, against each other. But interestingly, when Kevin Durant got injured, Steph Curry was on the court. He was supposed to be playing. And he walks down the tunnel with KD at the risk of maybe getting a foul or or getting thrown out of the game. And and the reporters ask him why he did that. And this is his answer. Chris Haynes, Yahoo Sports. Steph, you left. Um, You touched on it a little bit, but out of all the players that walked Kevin Durant all the way back to the locker room, you were the only one that was still in the game at that time. And... You know, with an NBA final stage when your timeouts are limited and the seconds are going by, you guys got to get a play up. Why did you feel it was so necessary to kind of go at that point? Sometimes the spirit tells you what to do. You don't really make decisions. You just act on it. So I can't tell you what went through my head. I just it felt right. Sometimes the spirit tells you what to do. Sometimes the spirit reminds you that it's not about seizing a moment to make yourself look good, but it's about loyalty. That true greatness is not about being threatened by others who are just as good as you or, or are better than you, but the true greatness is loyalty to the people that are around you, whether they're your superiors, whether they report to you, whether they're your peers. That true greatness 
values other greatness, is not threatened by the greatness of others. It shows loyalty. So when others try to drive a, a wedge between you and someone else, remember the true greatness looks beyond the differences and is loyal. When, when, when someone tries to hurt you, to offend you, when someone tries to trip you up, remember the true greatness is merciful and forgiving and drives towards reconciliation. The great leader is not self-centered, but is people-centered. And then fourthly, you'll see in this story that David fo displays focus above fear. As our story ends with, with a king who is very afraid of David and with a David who is focused on serving the king. Notice the contrast once again in verses 12 through 15. Is that Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David but had departed from Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men and David led the troop in their campaigns. In everything he did he had great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. Interesting, isn't it? The more that Saul watched David, the more he became afraid of him. It's interesting because David had never attempted to do anything against the king. He'd never done anything that, that would signify that Saul should worry about him. David was loyal to him. But Saul becomes overtaken with fear. It's like a paranoia. That's a terrible way to live. Fear will consume you. There are people who try to, to sort of spread a culture of fear about all these bad things that can happen. But let me tell you, fear will paralyze you. When you're expecting people around you to hurt you, when you're expecting to fail, when you're always thinking about the worst thing may happen to you, you will be caught up in that fear. Now, I'm not saying that, that there are not bad things that could happen or there are not bad people around us that could harm us. I, I know there are. That's the way the world works. There, there are people who try to trip us up. Anytime we do something good, somebody will oppose it. Somebody will criticize us. Somebody will discourage us. We don't have to be naive about that. But we don't have to get caught up in fear like Saul did. There is a difference between being overtaken with fear and being cautious. There's a difference between having wisdom to deal with difficult situations and letting paranoia take over. The one person in our story who had the right to be afraid was David. I mean, the king was trying to kill him. If David had shown some fear, I mean, I don't know if you ever had a spear thrown at you. That could be a pretty scary thing. I don't know if you've ever had a, a gun pointed at you. I've had. I've had a gun pointed at me. It's a pretty scary thing. But there's absolutely no indication in this passage that David let fear overtake him. See, David was focused on serving the king. A crazy king, yes. A crazy situation, yes. But David was focused. Saul sent him on military missions, and David fulfilled the missions. David was successful in every campaign. See, David focused on his assignment rather than the fear of his assailant. That's greatness. And the reason that David was able to do this was because of his confidence in the Lord. In everything he did, verse 14, he had great success because the Lord 
was with him. You know, when, when you know that the Lord is with you, you don't have to be afraid. When you know that the Lord is with you, you can focus on the task at hand, knowing that he's in control. See, David knew who he was and whose he was. He was secure in his identity. He didn't think too much of himself. He didn't think too little of himself. He knew he was the youngest in Jesse's family. He was a little boy who no one thought was important enough to bring before Samuel, and yet Samuel called for him, and he anoints him, anoints him as king. He is the one who takes care of the sheep. He is the one who shows up when Israel is afraid of Goliath. He is the one that protects his sheep from the bears and the lions. He is the one whose confidence in the field of battle and in the field of taking sheep is in the same Lord. He knows who he is and whose he is. And that's where his confidence lies. For now, Saul was in charge. David had been anointed king. And one day, he would become king. But it wasn't David's job to usurp the throne. That's God's job. God's timing. And that's true greatness. True greatness doesn't try to prove anything to anybody. True greatness becomes evident in the daily grind, in the daily devotion, in the daily task. True greatness becomes evident in due time. See, faith, someone has said, is not knowing necessarily what the future holds, but who holds the future. It's not about stressing out about what's going to happen, but it's about trusting that we know the one who makes it happen. That's true greatness. When you know who you are and whose you are, you can live confidently. There may be evil people around you. There may be people who discourage you, who try to trip you up. But you know who you are, and you know whose you are, and you know who holds your life, and you know who has called you, and you know who has equipped you. So you focus on the task, you ignore the things around you, and you keep doing what God has called you to do. There may be people in your life that think that they hold your destiny in their hands. It may be an oppressive supervisor. It may be a jealous colleague. But you know, you don't belong to your boss. You don't belong to your colleagues. You don't belong to your neighbors. You don't belong to your company. You don't belong to your school. You don't belong to your neighborhood. You belong to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He purchased you with a great price. He redeemed you. He has a plan for you. True greatness comes from knowing God. True greatness comes from having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, when you embrace the gospel and you live accordingly, when you believe that God loves you unconditionally, you're poised for greatness. When you believe that the God of the universe loved you enough to come down, to bring heaven down to earth, to die on the cross for your sins, you're poised for greatness, when you believe that the one who died on the cross to forgive your sins and to erase your past rose from the dead so that you can have a new life, so no matter how small or how tough or how beaten up you feel that there is power in the resurrection, when you believe that, you're poised for greatness. When you embrace the cross, the person and the work of Jesus Christ, and you let your weakness be 
his greatness in your life, then you are poised for greatness. Do you know Jesus that way? Does Jesus have your dreams? Does he have your fears? Does he have your struggles? Does he have your future? Does he have your past? Does he have your present? No matter who you are and what you're going through, does Jesus have you? Are you his? Is your identity found in him? Have you made him Lord and Savior of your life? If you haven't, that's where true greatness begins. It begins by following Jesus. Would you stand with me as we pray? Father, we thank you for David's life. We thank you for his example of greatness. We thank you, God, for the lessons that we can learn from him. But most of all, we thank you for his faith in you because we realize that that's where our strength can be found. Father, we desire greatness, but not greatness the way the world measures greatness, not the outward appearance or the approval of people or the popularity contest, but we want greatness, that's this inner greatness. It is the greatness of Jesus in us, the power of the resurrection living in us, and God, we, we pray that you do that work in us as we trust you. Right now, we lay at your hands our struggle, our fear, our challenges, those pressures from without that discourage us, and those voices from within that also discourage us. We ask that you silence them and that you speak your word of life, that you remind us that we are yours and that your plan never fails, that you are faithful. So help us to rest in you, to rely on you. Make much of yourself, God. Make much of Jesus in our lives that every day there be less of us and more of you. It's our prayer. As we continue with heads bowed and as you continue to think about how you need to respond to God's word today, if you're here and you've never trusted Jesus as Savior and Lord, you've never received the gift of forgiveness, you never made a commitment to follow him, then I wanna encourage you and I wanna invite you to do that right now. You can do that with a simple prayer of faith. You can pray like this if you like. You can say, dear Lord, I'm weak, I'm tired, I'm a sinner, but I know you love me. And I know you died on the cross for my sins. I believe you rose from the dead to give me new life and life eternal. Today I receive that gift. I want Jesus to be my savior and my Lord. I wanna follow him, I wanna be a disciple. Make me your child. Take my smallness and show your greatness through me. Jesus' name. If you pray that prayer, you're 
in your heart and you believing that God is doing the work in your life to make you a new person. We'd love to talk to you after the service and help you in the next step. Maybe there's something else that God is calling you to do, some other way in which he's calling you to trust him in your life. I encourage you to tell him right there where you are in the old quietness of your heart. Maybe you want to follow him in believer's baptism or join this church or, or step up to a task that God is calling you to do. Whatever it is, say yes. We're going to sing, and as we sing, you keep saying yes, you keep trusting, you keep letting go, and letting God do the work in your life.